0: Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. The family is a load-bearing structure. And in times of crisis, it's where you turn, right? I mean, it throws us back on that which we have. And frankly, plenty of people did not have that, right? And so their experience of stress in the pandemic was certainly more severe.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. And welcome today, once again, to our senior fellow, Professor Mark Ragnaros. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Mariana. Professor Regneros, I guess by now our audience knows you, but let's repeat it, is professor of sociology at UT Austin and is the author of four books the latest being The Future of Christian Marriage, and we talked about that already in our podcast. But I'm told, Mark, that the fifth book is on the way. Is that right?
0: It's in percolation, yeah. I'll be able to share more about it in the future, but uh, it's, it's, it's more of a sort of sociology of science that I'm doing. It's a little bit different than the books that have come before it.
1: Well, we certainly are very interested in seeing what's coming up, so stay tuned for that. Uh, of course, it's the author of more than 40 peer-reviewed articles. What we want to talk about today, Mark, since we have already talked about your latest book and I have already booked you for another episode, at least, if not an entire series on pornography and how this affects younger generation, especially in the U.S. But today we want to talk about an institution that is at the core of our mission here at the US Institute and is at the core of your studies, which is the family. And in particular, we would like to hear from you on what you think the family has undergone during this crazy pandemic time, if the family, also according to international documents, is the fundamental group unity of society, probably the you know the main question is: Did COVID affect this, or is it still the fundamental group unity of society? How did it do? So yeah, I know I know you've looked at some of the statistics about how households did during this pandemic, and so I would hope that you can enlighten us on this topic.
0: Yeah, the COVID era provided sociologists with a what we call a natural experiment. It's not like a lab experiment, which are better in some ways, but it's kind of a, a natural one where something happens to either a small group of people or a large group of people, or in this case, like it happens to everybody. Everybody has an experience of of, of COVID. So, and we've looked. We being the community of Social scientists have looked into sort of how households have changed, how they fared, how marriages have fared. And so I'll just talk a little bit about the basics of what we know. There's a great quote that appeared, I think, in Brad Wilcox's IFS blog that said, The popular takes on marriage in the time of COVID-19 run all over the map, meaning you can find anything your itching ears want to hear. And we'll talk a little bit about that. There are some s- stable conclusions. First of all, uh, we've seen a kind of a surge in multi generational homes. In the United States, the share of adults who are living with their parents has uh, increased fairly stably since probably 2005, close to 2010, certainly around the Great Recession.
1: So they didn't leave home for college, basically?
0: No, they probably left home for college, but they moved back in, right? But we're not talking about, you know, as in much of the rest of the world, young adults live with their parents, period, right? Until moving away to marry, that sort of thing. But in the United States, the share of Americans between 25 and 34 who now live with their parents is roughly around a little under 20%, about 16, 17%. And that, you know, that... That took an upturn during the COVID era, not double, typically speaking, or if it did, it did very temporarily. But uh, this has followed something that's been happening for well over a decade now. So it's not like we're new to it, but still, you know, even if tops off at 20 or 25%, which I don't think it has, that's still like a long way away from what it once was. And I wrote about in The Future of Christian Marriage, I said, you know, one of the things that I think. The yeah, I was about, I was about to ask
1: you about this because you have as a recommendation yes. that, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think living with your parents is not a bad idea if you do it correctly. And if parents have expectations of children and children have expectations of what what should be like, the quintessential 25-year-old living in his parents' basement playing video games is not what anybody wants. But I don't see a problem with multi-generational households and they are global in their character and frequency. And Americans just don't really do that, but they're doing more of it than they used to. So I don't think that's a bad thing. And frankly, a lot of the people who moved home during the pandemic didn't do so because they had to. They did so because they felt like it. If you're living in an apartment in New York by yourself, or you know you had two roommates and one departs to go home because they lost their job, like you don't want to be there by yourself. So parents provide sort of a cure to isolation. It's not the answer that they necessarily wanted to do, but they there's this kind of primal recognition that being with your family is a good thing, and it's how we get through big difficulties like this. And so in some ways, the pandemic threw us back on our families, which is not necessarily a bad thing <laughs> because families are how people navigate life. Whether we're talking about, you know, our adult parents, adult children
1: with their parents, or, well, we'll leave it at that. But so I would agree with you that going back to our family and understanding it's necessary is not bad. And actually, I would argue that we'll learn a lot more from living with our grandparents in the house and understanding what aging actually means and how, you know, help is needed at some point and the fact that we're not eternal. So, yeah. We can all agree on that. But what I would like you, you know, if you have data on this, is as this being like for the young people that went back home and having this new family, did this increase or decrease their reported level of happiness? Like did household flourish under these conditions? Was it easier for everyone? Was it harder for everyone? Right.
0: There's an interesting data set that came out of the Kinsey Institute last year. And, you know, I have my issues with the Kinsey Institute, but usually we, they and I wind up using the same data source for a lot of our data collection projects. So whenever they're producing some data project, I generally accord it legitimacy because I suspect they use the same source I do. They had a study of 1,117 married Americans between the ages of 30 and 50. And what they found was that, you know, family life and marital life tended to fare well the pandemic right at the same time like there were problems and like it was the pressure that people felt that all things considered they probably would rather not feel right who wants to feel the pressure of you know that a pandemic places on people anxiety about getting it anxiety about not getting out of the house the more frequent run-ins you might have with your spouse or your children or your adult children who moved home so at the same time that they saw that the pandemic was more likely to stress their family. And 63% of the adults who said this, married adults said, yes, the pandemic stressed our family. 35% said, yes, the pandemic tested our marriage. 74% of that married Americans between the ages of 30 and 50 said the pandemic actually strengthened their marriage, 74%. 85% said it helped them appreciate their spouse. Wow. So pressure has a way of doing this thing. Again, since Marriage and family are fundamental institutions and they're ordered for our good, even if they don't always feel good or work out well. You realize pressure is what they're there for, right? I talked about this in the last book too. You know, marriage is kind of this foundational institution, it's meant to be a load bearing structure in your life. And so I'm not surprised that solitary adult children would be attracted to moving back home, not because they wanted to move back in their bedroom or they wanted to see their parents every day, but because the family is a load-bearing structure. And in times of crisis, it's where you turn, right? I mean, it throws us back on that which we have. And frankly, plenty of people did not have that, right? And so their experience of stress in the pandemic was certainly more severe, economically more severe, psychologically more severe. And that's a sadness that we carry. And it's a long legacy of our kind of neglect of family.
1: So you would say that actually the people that didn't come from broken homes and that parents that were willing to have them back were actually doing better during the pandemic? That did
0: not come from broken homes. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, were they all happy and thrilled and get off medication? No, not necessarily. But it was typically a choice to go home and it was a better place to be frankly, people like the stability of their dad and what their mother offers to them. I mean, it's home, for crying out loud, right? So some people move home and then decide, you know, I don't really want to go back to the place I was living. And so they may move out of the house, if not already eventually, but they might, and many of them, I think, have chosen to sort of like, I'm actually going to stay in this town, right? Or this city instead of, you know, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. There's this kind of like, oh, I think I fit in here where I grew up.
1: So do you think that now it would be, and this is more, you know, your opinion also as a father, as a husband, as an American citizen, like would do you think that it will be culturally acceptable for people to understand that children are not moving away again and they have decided to stay and that it's, there's nothing wrong with that. They're not showing weakness in doing it or oh,
0: sure. I don't think it's would be considered culturally unacceptable. I don't know that it will be an easy hurdle to make it culturally acceptable, not just acceptable, like culturally normative to live at home or live in the same town. I mean, Americans are a migrating sort, which has its strengths and its weaknesses. But those of us who migrate far away from home lose the social support and control, frankly, of our parents and family. And we're just more vulnerable psychologically, relationally. So I think the pandemic has showed us that It can be a very good thing to be back home, or at least in your home environment. Normative is probably too much to ask for. Acceptable, yeah.
1: Okay. How about, since this is one of the phenomenon that people that are critical of the family, and I'm not saying that the family is always perfect, many times it isn't, but we're arguing about the basic need as human beings and the recognition that we are someone's children but the family is usually attacked by mentioning the times in which family becomes a place of violence so the question would probably be you know with going back home and with this all this pressure on, right. the, on the household and people being isolated what were the data on that front
0: complicated to figure out the thing with this sort of household violence it's not simple to measure you know but what we were inundated with at the outset of the pandemic, were warnings galore. People saying, you know, oh, this is going to be a disaster for domestic violence, or, you know, they call it household violence, you can call it intimate partner violence, gender based violence, but there were warnings to a, a large degree, right? But they're kind of data less warnings, right? And so then I, I mapped out, like, well, what data do we have on this? And here it is, 15 months in. and. I tell you, I can't tell you how many articles I read that were basically commentaries, letters to the editor, these kind of things like warning that this is going to be a problem. But how much have we actually learned about it? Not that much, right? It's not an easy thing to collect data on, but we got the impression that this was going to be a disaster in terms of domestic violence, just because people said it's going to be a disaster, right? So. Obviously, social interaction breeds conflict. It's like the oldest and most primal sociological law. But that doesn't mean people have to be like openly fighting or violent, right? Sure, it happens. But one of the things I, I was disappointed to see in what data did exist is almost an across the board failure to distinguish between marital forms of violence and non marital forms of violence. And so, When I was reading about this internationally, you sort of see in the United Nations documents this sort of emphasis on intimate partner violence language, IPV, or gender-based violence, GPV. And so even well before the pandemic, 2014, the last intimate partner violence study issued by the CDC, they used the word intimate 606 times in that document. And they never used the words married or marital or husband at all, right? Not even once. I mean, to me, that's not simply irritating. That's being a poor social scientist failing to make distinctions when they exist in social reality. So in the last year, I was looking at this Argentine study, 1,500 women were asked about intimate partner violence in the one-year period before the quarantine and since the beginning of the quarantine, which is only a period of two months in this case. Even though they distinguish between married and unmarried intimate partners in their questions, they didn't reveal the difference in violence rates. To me, it's like you're hiding something, right? If you're not hiding something, well, then, then show us that marriage doesn't matter for this.
1: So that marriage would not decrease? To, is that your...
0: My claim, and mm-hmm. I suspect it's true, is that marriage is far less risky Dangerous, for intimate yes. partner violence but there data than on non-marriage. This? Aren't there data saying? on this? That there differ? are data on this yeah. pre-pandemic. So I was mostly focused on like the pandemic stuff.
1: But what do they say about the pre-pandemic? So cohabitation and you know right. small-term you know, relationship you think versus about, married
0: capital. When you think about the risk to children, the risk of a, a stepfather, especially a mother's boyfriend, is always notably higher than the risk of the child's biological father right and so now you, sometimes in news stories you have to kind of wade through them to try to figure out what is the relationship of this child to the the man who hurt them right it just happened in dallas the other day a four-year-old was dead in the street by a jogger with visible wounds on them it's a horrible tragedy and i'm trying to wade through like what do we know about the person who has been arrested for this and you know it's like Okay, it's like the boyfriend of the woman who was looking after these children who were not hers. They were her. I mean, it's a mess in terms of trying to figure out the household structure, right? I mean, we found this back in 2012 when you're trying to map household structures. It's not enough just to say, oh, this Johnny grew up in the step family household or single parent household. Lots of kids are growing up in lots of kinds of households for discrete periods of time, right? And so just mapping their history Is a jumble. That jumble makes them extra vulnerable, definitely compared to sort of the violence that you see in stably married households. I mean, it does exist. In one sense, like there's a longer period of hazard for it, right? If you're stably married, like there's more chance of it occurring. But the likelihood that it would occur is notably lower than it is when we're talking about boyfriends. Stepfather's second spouse. I mean, that sort of
1: thing. Yeah. Right? And intuitively speaking, if you make a commitment to someone for all your life and you go through the whole process of marriage, which is not that common today, you probably are not going to do it because you are inclined to act violently right. um, against your right. spouse. But I mean,
0: there's some level of trust that's been built. Right? Yeah. And some people leave those marriages when that occurs. So like the further along in marriage you go, the less of a risk I suspect it is.
1: Yeah, the only other thing is that if there is any way to also maintain the fact that the entire family is around the same dinner table and sleeping in the same house might actually prevent some of the violence that goes unreported and undetected because there is no one around.
0: Yeah, so in the COVID era, when people came back home, right, irritation probably rose on average. <laughs> I think the jury's out, so to speak, the social science is out on whether violence arose among married couples. I really don't think we have the data on. It. I haven't seen it yet. We saw some international stuff about anxiety and things like that. One of the things I was struck by is in places of the world where it's socially acceptable to esteem marriage, like India and Nigeria. I saw studies from both of those places where they, you know, they both measured marriage and they observed that Married participants were notably less likely to have developed anxiety during the pandemic, better coping skills, better mental health, compared to you know as I mentioned that Argentine study. There's an Austrian study where I know they mention having measured marriage, and they didn't map the influence of it. So to, to me, it's sort of like they are in service potentially, I suspect to some higher political goal of. Making our relationships all the same, household violence, intimate partner violence, like intimate partners differ widely, right? I mean, marriage is not just the same as cohabitation. It's not just the same as having a boyfriend.
1: Yeah, I, I'm imagining just a romantic comedy, you know, it's like one of those movies that we watch around Christmas time, and seeing the guy, you know, on his knees say, "Do you want to be my intimate partner, or do you want to be my wife?" And just imagine you know, the reaction of the girl. You know, there is a difference now. Yeah. Why is that?
0: Right. I'm almost offended at the use of intimate partner because there are plenty of sexual relationships out there, which you might call it sexually intimate. Like there is no intimacy here, right? And so we're even falsely portraying some relationships as being intimate when all they are is sexual right it's almost like this how would this you define synonym. it diff- just to be intimacy to me is like it's not just bodily it's emotional it's spiritual it's sharing experiences together in some ways you think like how can two people who have you know lived 30 40 50 years apart from each other all of a sudden like form this intimate relationship when you know, they just started sharing. You know what I mean? But we equate this with all sexual relationships, and I think it's a mistake.
1: Okay. So, basically, what you're telling us today is that what the data shows is what we could have imagined from the beginning, which is the family is actually also a good a good way out of the problems of a pandemic.
0: Way out maybe too strong, but like a way through. I think what we have noticed is that the family is designed for navigating stress, right? Among people who have responsibilities of care for each other, they may not always get along well. Situations arise when they're irritated with each other, but like this is, you know, I I think there was this definition, it might be a country music definition, I forget. Family is what you, who has to take you in when you've got nowhere else to go. So that's what they're there for, right? So I'm not surprised at all that people who had these resources have navigated the COVID pandemic better than those who have not. I mean, and it's a tragedy for those who have not. It's not something that we want to keep from people. It's something that we want to esteem and suggest and promote for the well-being of everyone.
1: So could we hope that this as a prediction that actually having experienced this pandemic and having experienced the benefit of being around people will might lead to a what we're waiting for is a surge in marriages of mm. young people that will finally realize they cannot be on their own.
0: We can hope for it. We've definitely witnessed a decline in the marriage rate. Some of that's just general postponement. Some of it is a lack of development of relationships that we're moving in the marital kind of direction until, you know, it makes it more difficult to see your beloved in this situation. So the question is, will it bounce back? Now, something I mentioned in the last book is when you have marital delay, does it mean, oh, it's just you know pent up demand and it'll catch up later? Or is it will actually lead to a decline in the share of married couples? And we noticed that globally, whenever you see significant delay, it's a great predictor of significant overall decline in marriage rates downstream. So that's a frustration. So I don't know what to expect. I'm betting against a an explosion like, you know, a marriage boom. I don't see the evidence for that. I'm hoping that the decline is not pronounced.
1: Were you at all surprised at the answers of people that were interviewed reporting, you know, happy, being, you know, quite happy with their marriage during the pandemic right. or?
0: Functioning marriages. They don't have to be thrillingly happy marriages. Functioning marriages can do well. When, you know, the pandemic puts you back into the house full-time with spouse, you think to yourself i need to make the best of this we've got the raw materials now we have more time let's make the best of it and i'm not saying that everybody did but they had the opportunity and so as that kinsey data i mentioned highlights they felt stress some wanted out but on average they made you appreciate the person more and you know the modal answer the most common answer was that you know it improved things between you and them
1: and final question and then i'll let you go but i'd really promise our audience and you promised me that we're going to talk about some other issues very soon but my last question is whether there is any you know information on what young adults living on their own experience during the pandemic and whether if they were ever asked like would you rather be in a family than being on your own now like if- yeah
0: i don't know the answer to that question i think the focus on most of the social science that was conducted During the pandemic, was more on economic ramifications, some on social psychological, a lot on psychological ramifications, less on how young adults felt about family and marriage and their own sort of relational future. Which is kind of unfortunate not to have asked questions on the other things. That's fine, but like it kind of signals that our concern about relational futures and marriage is you know not pronounced since our focus is more on you know how are you doing economically psychologically etc even though those things are connected with marriage and marital flourishing
1: well so i'd be happy to hear from our audience they can find our email address also the info at austininstitute.org if they I, i'd be curious to know from our audience what they thought if that you know there's a lot of young adults that are listening to us and just together from them if they actually wished. They had already found their future spouse. Or, and anyway, all those that postponed your marriage during the pandemic now also based on the social science. You should just you know, move forward, get married, make sure you, there's no other pandemic that surprises you while you're still on your own. And with that, I want to thank you, Mark, for your time.
0: You're welcome, Mariana. Glad to do it. And I'll see you soon. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating, and please donate so we can do even more.